0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. My name is Goose, and on today's show, I was joined by Michael Batura, who is Melbourne's leading happiness coach for stress leaders and anxious business people, but he's also an expert on positive neuroplasticity, which is effectively rewiring your brain for happiness. So we talk a lot about that today. The episode was really great, really insightful, and quite frankly, a lot of fun, and I'm sure that you're going to get a lot out of it, particularly in a day and age where we're so bombarded with like lots of neat negative news and negative sentiment in media and all of these other kind of places. It's really important to understand how you can be in control of your mind and the way that you perceive the world around you. So without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. I can't wait to share this with you and I'll see you on the inside. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me on today's show is Michael Batura. Michael is Melbourne's leading happiness coach for stress leaders and anxious business people. But the reason I've asked him to be on this show is because he knows all about neuroplasticity and hacking your brain for happiness. And that is something that I am really, really passionate about. Michael, I'm super excited to have you here. Welcome to the Investor Lab.
1: Thank you, Goose, And I'm super excited to join you. I like your, um, I like your angle on things. So I think we're going to have a nice wrap. I think yeah. we're going to
0: have a nice wrap too. Now, before we go deep into the world of neuroplasticity and all of the very interesting things around rewiring your brain and all of that kind of stuff, I'd like to take a little bit of a step back, right? Because mm-hmm. becoming a happiness coach is not a typical pathway. I don't know when you're at high school and your careers teacher is saying, hey, I, you know, what do you want to be? When you go, I don't think many people say I'm going to be a happiness coach. <laughs> I, that is not a – so I'm, I'm very curious What set of circumstances had to happen in your life for that to become a thing that you decided you needed to to do? Like, what do we need? What what context would we need to know about your history to understand how you arrived at this place?
1: Ah, interesting question. Um, You know, tongue in cheek, I would say a lot of misery that I went through. (laughs) Um, By way of saying that, uh, what I've discovered over the years, as I was going through, you know, various chapters of my life is that I consistently went from, you know, being happy in a certain setup or circumstances to the circumstances changing, whatever it is, whether it was a relationship, job situation, whatnot, not. And, and then happiness was gone. And it, it, it intrigued, intrigued me to kind of figure out, uh, is there a, a consistency in happiness that can be found through whatever, practice, understanding, tradition, learning, wisdom, someone else who knows about it, that does not depend on circumstances, uh, and having you know the the luxury, I guess, of of a lifetime of trying things and figuring out and self-reflection and working in a variety of ways, um, I slowly have arrived at an understanding with regards to happiness that has helped me to then define it and 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 turn it into a sort of a, a program or a work that I can do with other people as my coaches so i know i certainly didn't set out to be a happiness coach as such it's it's just that as i was moving into training and coaching in general um i realized that that's probably an interesting edge to work because if you actually think about it the majority of people when they want to change want to feel better about themselves and essentially want to be happy and yet we usually project our happiness on a specific situation whether it's circumstances a person something that i want to acquire a, a marker of success in our career and, and et cetera, etc etc so so i was looking for that happiness that does not depends on circumstances um and i realized that eventually people will realize, will realize themselves that they cannot get the happiness they're looking for or at least it's not sustainable you know something else will come up um, and, and that's how it sort of all came together as I was working as a coach and a trainer I thought that's an interesting sort of pathways to explore partly because I was also at the time training in positive neuroplasticity which we'll explore in more detail so I won't explain it now but uh, that sort of went really well hand in hand in terms of why am I ending up calling myself what I do and what is happiness? <laughs> Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research that suggests that, that happiness does depend on your circumstances up till a certain point. In other words, if you're hungry, you're hungry. It's very hard to be happy when you're hungry, right? So there's a certain level of, of, uh, income even in the research that suggests that if you get more of it, you'll be generally feeling more content, right? And you can divide happiness to what you would think about is more of a decadent happiness, which depends on circumstances. Uh, and happiness that it's just a state, it's an inner state of, of, of being. But beyond a certain point, once you've satisfied your basic needs and you feel connected and you feel like you've got something that you can do that brings your value to the world, a lot of it is is a matter of learning how to say yes to what is in the present moment, right? We, we, we have uh, a conversation in our head with whatever is going on in our experience. So if you notice... Uh, if you if you start to reflect on how you're interacting with your experience in the world, you realize that you're continuously kind of conversing with that experience by agreeing, disagreeing, wanting, reaching out to get something else, um, arguing with it. Uh, there's a lot of consternation that comes out of the fact that we think the world should um, happen or, uh, you know, sort of unfold in a certain way. Then it unfolds in a different way. And we argue with the circumstances, Right. And and the kind of happiness that I'm talking about is the learning to uh, understand that origin of the origin of that argument, the origin of that conversations with reality, and then learn to have a better conversation with reality, which invariably leads you to kind of saying yes to what is reality or what is your experience, at least. Reality maybe is a bit confusing here, but your experience is very specific. Something happened and you need to respond to that. And your capacity to be happy is in your ability to choose how you're going to respond, not by what happened. That's the kind of happiness that I work with.
0: So, if I'm reading a little bit into what what you're saying there, it seems as though what you're implying is that expectation is actually the antithesis, or the uh, or the or the greatest um, barrier potentially to happiness. Because if what you're saying is that our Perception of what we think something should or should not be dictates whether or not we can perceive perceive our current situation to be happy with that result. It kind of creates that. That's where the dissonance comes from is the expectation of what something could or should or might be or not be versus what it actually is versus versus accepting what it is and being happy with that. So is, that a, is that a fair statement? Because you hear things like, say, comparison is the thief of joy, but but potentially, based on what you're saying right there, maybe expectation is the thief of joy. What do you think about that?
1: I, I would tend to agree but sharpen it a little bit because I don't think there's a problem with expectation. You know, it, it it the fact that we can plan, that we have this cognitive capacity to visualize ideas and then turn those ideas into, you know, something that happened, whether it's, you know, we make something, like everything that – we use, any object that we use was an idea at someone's head at one point or another We that that has been turned then into that object, right? Or anytime you planned anything, you had to plan and you kind of had to expect that, well, I'm planning and I'm expecting this to happen. And then if it doesn't happen, I'll change my plan or whatever. So the problem is not so much the expectation. If you think about it, the problem is our attachment to our expectations unfolding exactly the way we expect them to. The problem is not so much to expect. The problem is when you expect and it doesn't work, how do you then, you know, how do you deliberate with the backlash of your resentment and thinking um, about it where you're dissatisfied with the fact that your expectation didn't work out?
0: Mm. That's that's a really good that's a really good and interesting dist- distinction because without expectation without desire you have no ambition right so you yeah. why would you start why would you start on a quest to achieve something with no expectation that that could even possibly you, you kind of wouldn't you would stagnate right so I understand yeah. I understand uh, that perspective how do you then detach your, um, the, those two kind of like seemingly dichotomous outcomes, right? So I want to have an expectation that I will win or succeed at something. However, I am going to detach from the, um, I'm going to detach from whatever that outcome is because, and detachment has to happen in both ways, right? You've got to be able to separate the, the outcome from your emotions, pretty much however it goes, right?
1: The, the, the practice, the practice involves a sort of a layered approach to, you know, having an idea that you want to get to somewhere or do something, then um, translating that idea to an action plan. All good, you know, universe favors action. We hear that a lot in, you know, in the realm of wisdom businesses and whatnot. But then when actually things happen and you take action and the result is not exactly what what happens, then you got a choice. You can say, okay, well, I have a roadmap. I'm here and I want to be here. And I found myself in a, you know, I'm in point A and I want to be in point B. Now I find myself in point C. At that point, I can adjust. I can say, okay, well, for me to go from point C to B, I have to take the next action and the next action. Fine. But sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you can't take the next action. And that point, that's where usually we get annoyed. So, so, so the idea of us striving to get a result and continuously adjusting our actions to continue towards getting to the, that results, that's fantastic. As long as our emotions are intact, what happens is that our emotions get triggered, like for whatever reason, we'll explore more, you know, what's going on in the human brains in terms of like how we respond to the present moment in a, in a minute. But, but for the purpose of just this particular sentence, our emotions tend to reflect our reaction to what's going on in that particular moment. And so if we had an idea that we want something to happen and that didn't happen, usually we might get an emotional response. Fine, we cannot control that, right? It's a trigger. What we do with that emotions, whether we actually engage with that emotion to the point where rather than just give us some information, emotion is a data point, I'm unhappy about this, okay, go and do something, right? But if it's, I'm unhappy about this and now I'm going to be really annoyed and grumpy and I'm going to kind of argue and yell and, you know, sort of like, why does the universe do this to me? I have no power here. When you go into that conversations, what you do is you actually turn an emotion that was just a response, a, almost like a biochemical uh cascade of stuff that's going in the body to kind of bring you back into balance and you turn it into a, a a sort of another third form where you're arguing with what's going on and that's the part that you want to learn to contain
0: mm. as i understand it you are a war veteran you've 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 served in the military is that is that correct because i'd be interested to know how that experience shaped <laughs> your current <laughs> worldview
1: uh, yes, I am. I, you know, I, in, in the bigger scheme of things and, and you know, the kind of um, uh, uh, tragedies that can unfold in participating in any armed conflict, I I probably was lucky enough to, you know, certainly went through some, you know, what would you call live action in my case, but it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as dreadful as it could have been in some ways, I guess. Uh, usually when you watch war movies, you tend to see the, you know, the sort of the extreme of that. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly it was in situations where we were fighting for our lives and shooting and people were dying and all that sort of, you know, fairly heavy handed side of armed conflict. And and at the time, what I didn't realize is that that has catapulted me into a, what I would call a, 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 dr- a drive to understand why are we doing this, right? So I, I went through it thinking that I was Serving a particular cause because that's what the way, that's the way that I grew up with. I grew up to think that, you know, like if we get attacked, we got a response, we got attacked, so we are responding and we're doing the right thing here. And I'm not saying that there's never a situation in which that might not arise as the only option for you to survive. And if you want to survive, you might have to do that. But beyond that, the, 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 the construct of using conflict um, in which two sides are trying to kill each other as a way to resolve difference um, occurred to me as impossible. In other words, it got me to a point where I thought, re- like, really? Like, is this? Yeah, I have all the evidence of history that this is the way that we've done things for, you know, quarter of a million years, probably. But could we not do it better than that, right? Are we not at mm-hmm. a level where we can sort of move forward? And I didn't have at that age, I was young, I was 20 years old, I didn't have at that age the, the, the emotional depths or the intellectual capacity to decipher the language I needed in order to understand that conversation. Interestingly enough, about uh, 20 or 30 years later, I came across a particular quote, which I haven't been able to find the origin, but um, I, I suspect it comes from the Eastern tradition, that says... I refuse to participate in the inner machinations of murder, right? Mm. I take a stand in which this is not what I'm going to do with my problems. And it goes back to what I was trying to say before, that at the end of the day, you have no control over circumstances. And and the illusion that we have control over circumstances can only come out of the fact that we live in a fairly happy, organized uh, you know, well structured society. We, you know, we were talking before and you mentioned that you, you're stationed in Bali at the moment. Well, you probably have seen a situation in Bali where suddenly things that you thought were given were not. So maybe the electricity has gone off or, you know, there, there's, there is a whole lot of stuff that is out of our control and we assume it's under control because it works well. If anything, one of the, could you call it the upsides of us trying to deal globally with a pandemic is maybe some collective understanding that we're not in control because we thought we had control. And then, you know, some r- bush rat or, or whatever it was out of a, a market in, you know, wet market in, in, in a corner of the globe in, you know, sort of changed the world within two or three months. Like that, that's kind of mother nature tapping us on our shoulder and saying, eh, I don't actually think you're in control. And if you wanted to prove, here it is. So, we don't have control over circumstances, but we do have control of the stand that we take in response to the circumstances, and how we think about it, the focus that we use in terms of how we respond to it, the meaning that we give it, the actions that we take, we have control over that. So, when I say I refuse to participate in the inner machinations of murder, I'm saying I'm going to take, I'm going to own the fact that I have a choice in how am I going to respond And I might decide at the end of the day to respond in a particular way that might be warlike if it's the right thing, but I'm not assuming that that's the only choice I have. So in saying that, do you think that
0: we are never in control of our circumstances or sometimes in control of our circumstances? Because it can be – I would say for some people it can be pretty disempowering to think that they are never in control of their circumstances, that everything – is just happening and the only thing they can control is their response. Because a lot of people that, that that points to a lack of self determination and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And then if, if everything is just happening anyway and you're not in control of your circumstance, how could you ever try and be the better version of yourself? Because it, it's almost like, well, whatever will be will be. And that sort of then leads down to so how do you rationalise those that yeah. that balance between yeah. you know be, being you know being a not being a victim of your circumstance, right? And yeah. but also except but also accepting that you know there are lots of things that are out of your control. How do you rationalize those two elements? Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that's a fantastic question, Good. Uh, look, the problem here is not the actual yes, control, not control. The problem is the timeline. There is the timeline, right? Mm. Um, and and I've 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 seen it enough in the in the um, self-reflective circles. Call it. In other words people and organizations who are interested to not just go through the motion in automatic pilot, but actually try to understand what's going on and grow, right? Which is a fantastic opportunity for us. Every human has that opportunity. And most of us take that choice sooner or later. But there is often an argument saying, well, you know, if anything is kind of like happens and I have no power, I might as well do whatever I want. Right? And, 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 and there is a sort of a deconstructionist kind of postmodern attitude in that, that, that I don't think serves us well. So let's clarify what I mean by no control. When I say no control, what you have no control of is you don't have control of the narrative that's going to unfold in front of you. You do have control of how are you going to relate to that. And you probably have a control over kind of what's going to happen in the next minute or so. And within that, you can say, well, tomorrow I'm going to go and have, a, you know, I'm going to have a podcast interview with Goose, and we both plan for that, and we both show up, and, and, and you know, the technology works, and and we can sort of, how wonderful it is, we can talk to each other when you're in Bali, and I'm in Warburton, and we, we're having this conversation, everything is fine, and we say, well, we have control because we plan right, we use the right technology, we both have co- True, but if, for some example, the you know the the tree down the road would have fallen my power lines, right? We wouldn't have this these conversations. So it, there is a seeming control when the system is well adjusted and works well enough until it doesn't. And and we have no idea when we step outside our door in the morning and get into the car or go on the bus or go for a walk or get on our bikes or whatever, we have no idea whether we're going to come back or not. There is no way for us to control that. There's a way for us to mitigate the chances of something happening in the way of that, in the way of our plan. And if we plan well, we're actually pretty good at kind of having control. But it's not control because we actually control the situation. It's control because the plan you know, was wise enough to work. You know, when I first came here uh, to Australia, I remember my I I used to sort of hang out around uh, Eastern suburbs in Sydney and use a lot of buses. And I remember my utter surprise when I realized that you can go to the bus stop and there will be a timetable that tells you what time the bus comes. To me, that was just incredible. How could you plan so well that you know that, because where I come from, traffic is so chaotic, right? And there's a whole lot of other... Um, you know, sort of, um, uh, parameters that impact the way the traffic goes. And the bus comes kind of like every 20 minutes or every 30 minutes or whatever. But you cannot say that it's going to come at 241. And here, for some reason, you can. Why? Because we have, you know, very moderated, reasonably well adjusted traffic. People follow the rules and, and, and whatnot. So in every given situation, you, seemingly have control to the degree that the system that's been constructed in order to afford you that control is is well adjusted to the circumstances. And that gives us a modicum of control. But as I said before, something happens that is completely out of our control that has a cascade effect and take your control out of the situation completely because something else happened on the other side of town. That happens a lot. And we tend to think, oh, that was bad luck, right? And you could argue that it was bad luck, but regardless of whether it was luck or destiny or just coincidence, whatever, the fact is you thought you had control and now you don't because something happens outside your realm of influence. And so you shrink that time, that time sort of unit by which you take an action and you anticipate the response and you you more or less have control over the response and you end up in about a minute. And that's mm. the control that we really have
0: interesting interesting let's switch gears a little bit because i want to dig into uh, positive neuroplasticity because that's a that's a big one and i know that we we could, we could go down this line of thinking for we could spend yeah. the next hour on this line of thinking but i want yes. i want to get i want to get on a neuroplasticity because it's not something that a lot of people i think know about um it's mm. not something that is and i think that more people should know about it so so just mm. to kind of like let's get into that side of things what is sure. neuroplasticity and and then what is positive neuroplasticity? How does it work? You know, let, let's let's start yeah. on that train.
1: Sounds good. So one of the interesting things that's happening for us, you know, in terms of our understanding of how we interact with the world and what goes on in our head, is that the the, the scientific research and the advancement of technology around scientific research of the brain have gone so advanced in the last thirty years, say. That we've, we've been learning more about the human brain in, you know, in, in the last few years that we've had known the entire history of human, human beings, right? Because we suddenly can look into the brain. And up until the point where we could look into someone who's still alive and see what's going on in the brain, the assessment was that the brain grows, you know, you, you grow as a young person, you grow, you mature and run about the age of 20, 25, Run, you know, on the spectrum between that, w- within those two numbers, your brain stops growing and he's kind of like arrived at its maximum sort of way of being. And from then on, it's, pretty much a bit of a decline actually you start to lose uh, you know I don't know I think about 10,000 cells a day not not big in the bigger scheme of things right we, we have a hundred billion of those but but you start to kind of decline and your brain is already fixed and because your brain is fixed the way that you can behave and interact and and whatnot is is also fixed what they've seen is that that's not the case so the brain can continuously rewire itself in mm. response to a new way of interaction. And that's where the idea of neuroplasticity has come from. The idea that your neural system is actually not just growing and then becoming fixated on who you are. It continuously can plasticize, can change in response to new ways of being, doing things, being, new way of being, new way of responding, new way of interacting with the world, right? So that's the neuroplasticity of it, and actually, when you think about it, now that we know that that's what's going, of course, it makes sense. Like if you need to learn a new language in your, you know, in your thirties, you can do that. You can actually embed new material, new ideas. You can learn, you know, you want to learn how to dance. You've never danced before. You learn how to dance. All of that has some corresponding changes in the brain. Where it gets really interesting is that. When we look at how neuroplasticity has served us along history, human history, by and large, it has served us for one purpose, because nature is only interested in one thing. It wants you to survive long enough to probably until your children will have children, and that's, that's done. Thank you very much. You know, you've served your purpose as far as Mother Nature is concerned. And, you know, it, it, if you look at, the, again, like historical data in terms of how that looked like for a tribe on the savannah, that was probably until someone was 35 or 40. And that was it. And most most humans died relatively early, early certainly compared to how how we live. Um, and so the neuroplasticity in that context was very much, how can I make sure that these particular individuals survive best until they get a chance to have children and hopefully their children to have some children? That's it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that leaves us with a very uh, tragic, I would say, legacy in the sense that the brain learned to favor embedding and, and, and integrating uh, survival input, uh, because that was crucial for you. So mm-hmm. we actually have a negative bias that tends to favor us thinking and interacting with our environment, with our experience. With particular focus to what's not good, doesn't work, uh, you know, broken, dangerous, uh, threatening, upsetting, etc., etc. Because that's the side of survival that keeps you alive. If you, as a you know, as a fifty thousand year old human being that you walk on the savanna in that time, if you um, happen to chance upon a source of food like a, a tree of fruit, uh, say mangoes, you know, a mango tree. I'm not sure if they had mango trees in the savannah, but anyway, uh, you chance upon a mango they tree. Should. They should. The
0: they should have mango trees in the savannah. They should have mango trees Absolutely. everywhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we should actually start an organization that that's their <laughs> imperative, right? Plant mango trees in the savannah. Um, and, and so uh, you walk on the savannah and there's a mango tree. It's fantastic. But if you kind of didn't pay attention to that, that's not a big deal for you, right? Because mm. there will be another tree or there will be another source of food or you'll notice it tomorrow. But if, 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 on this, by the same token, if you walk you know, the same route and you fail to realize that at a particular time of the day, there is a, you know, a, a, a group of lions that is going to cross that particular because they're on the way to the waterhole, um, you'll never eat any mangoes in your life anymore. So mm. from nature's point of view, your brain is more interested in what's going to go wrong and what's broken and what's threatening and what doesn't feel good. Uh, then it is interested in the good stuff. And if you compound that interest, that focus, over thousands of generations, where the people who were the jumpy, gnarly, suspicious kind of, um, you know, uh, personalities, had better luck at having children, while the one who were, you know, the hippies, the tree huggers, oh, this is a cool tiger, those didn't have children, right? And and so over thousands of generations, you end up with a human brain that, by and large, is fixed on retaining, embedding, imprinting negative experiences much faster and much deeper than positive experiences, and and, That's, and that sort of screws us up because <laughs> we expect
0: the worst. That's really interesting. Do you think that that is why? Because, look, I'm sure you would agree. I think everyone agrees. I think everyone knows what I'm about to say. that Negative news tends to get a lot, tends to go a lot further, right? So, you know, the yeah. old classic media, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, like everyone is just, every time you look at the media, it's a bad news story. Do you, yeah. and do you think that the underlying reason that, um, negative news gets our attention a lot more is because of what you've just explained there, where it's like there is a there is a far greater imperative for our for our natural systems to respond um, to a perceived threat than a perceived benefit. Because if it was good news, you'd be like, yeah, well, that's cool to your point. And like the mango tree in the savannah, if you walk past it, hey, it's all good. Maybe there's another mango. Hey, it's all good. If it's a tiger, ah, I'm going to die. Better pay a lot of attention to that. Do you think that that's, do you think that is like interrelated? Because a lot of the things that I see with a lot of people lately, and particularly in the current environment, is they're so emotionally um, highly strung because of the Mm -hmm. consistent barrage of negative, you know, world's going to end, this is going to crash, war here, you know, inflation, this, interest rates, this, (laughs) property market, this, yada, yada, yada. It's just got people into this heightened state of distress, effectively.
1: Yeah. Do you think that's related to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think yeah, what's what's tragic about it is that most of us do not live with tigers anymore. But that doesn't really make yeah. any difference to us because we don't live with real tigers, we live with imaginary tigers because of the way that the brain is, is you know, mm. uh, wired to kind of notice the stuff that doesn't work, notice the bad stuff, right? And of course, mm. if that's what the brain is wired for, then, you know, if you want to be a successful media organization, you want to get people's interest, you're going to supply them with the stuff that goes, wow, 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 life is dangerous because they're going to notice it, right? Yeah. And it doesn't serve us well. Now, like, if you took children and you stopped them from doing that and you allowed them to, you know, just grow up in a sort of a positive environment that doesn't doesn't elaborate on the difficult stuff that life Mm -hmm. happens, I'm not sure that that will serve them the best because sooner or later... Right. They will have to contend with the fact that, you know, life can be tough at times. All of us experience it. But it's the way that we learn to interact with that, which is subconscious and tends to ruminate and, you know, really kind of dig into self-flagellation in that context that mm-hmm. is problematic. Because the other thing that sort of happens with that is that we have this particular construct, psychological construct that tends to see ourselves as the center of the world right? The mm-hmm. egoic sort of mind. And because of that, we usually take things personally, even when we shouldn't. So some shit happens around us. And instead of just like, oh, shit happens. And, you know, if I had something that I need to deal with, I'll deal with it. Otherwise, I don't need to worry about it. Instead, we sort of start to take that in. And we start to, you know, work with it and process and think, you know, I should have said that I could have done that or whatever. Um One way to think about it is your experience with, say, uh, having, you know, going out with your friends, you know, last night, and you had a great time, and it was fantastic evening, you you know, you felt really good and whatnot, and then today you kind of think about it, and it's like, yeah, nice, that was nice, and, you know, you might even feel warm about it. But it's not actually going to play a lot of bandwidth in your inner conversations, you know, that ongoing voice that just comments on everything that's going on throughout the day. But if you have a shitty time, if you got into an argument with one of your friends, what are you doing for the next two days in your head, Mm. right? You keep having minor variations of the same argument over and over again. And if you think about it, a lot of those variations try to lead to a point where you feel justified about being right about what's happened and you piss off with them, right? And so so that tendency, that ruminating tendency to take something that might be, let's say, negative in the sense that it was, you know, it was impactful in a way that wasn't pleasant or was, um, disfavorable for your you know for your, your interaction with someone and you take that and then you just on and on and on chew on it that's definitely part of that that tendency to be worried about what's going to go wrong rather than what's going to go right mm. and that positive neuroplasticity tried to change
0: that's so interesting it's so interesting, particularly in a in a more di- in a more digital context, right? Because a lot of people are less connected, and so we run a uh, our, our business is one hundred percent distributed. So we don't, you know, we've got team all yeah. over the place, and so we're mostly communicating virtually, which is like messages and, and stuff yeah. like that. And the context can be so misconstrued, right? So you can have a neutral, somebody pre- presenting a neutral reference piece of information, which can be perceived as a negative reference piece of information. And then you can create all of this dissonance between the reality and the emotion. And then you play those through in your mind. And so, yes, yeah, so it's really, really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. okay. So if neuroplasticity is at its core the ability to rewire our brain, that's effectively mm. what we're saying, the ability to, yeah. the ability to, Manipulate and mould and uh, and create that malleability in our own brain to achieve more, do it, do the things that we want to do. What are some What are some ways that we can start to rewire our brain to find more happiness? Because if what we've currently got is wiring that says look out for everything that's potentially dangerous or potentially stressful or might damage your relationships or damage your future or your finances or your health or your happiness Mm. or whatever, and we're on high alert. That (laughs) means that we have wired ourselves in a certain way or have been because of the environment that we've been a part of, we have Mm. become wired in a certain way. Now, to your point, I don't think it's good to be wired in a completely unrealistically optimistic way because then that's not going to serve you either. But how Mm. can we... how can we actually start to deliberately and purposefully rewire our brains to seek and find and identify more happiness to at least put that negative bias into balance? Because if we had, it's good to have some reference for, okay, this could be a risk because you need that. But then how do we start to then rewire our brain for more happiness? How do we start to do that?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly the core of the work. So a lot of, a lot of the work that I do is based on, on, on research and application developed in this particular model by, uh, by a teacher named Rick Hansen, who's based in the US and does this beautiful kind of amalgamation of, of his knowledge and research or, you know, neuroscience, uh, his understanding of psychology and his practice of mindfulness based applications. Um, and, and, he, and he brought all that together uh, into this model called positive neuroplasticity. And, and, and what he points out to is this idea that, it, you, you know, if you think about the average number of thoughts that each one of us have, and if you, you know, if you go and research the data, there's various suggestions of that number, right? So so some people say it's around uh, 60,000, you know, sort of thoughts a day. Other people say it's around 20,000, but it's thousands and thousands of thoughts any day, right? Or maybe 20,000 where they kind of replace each other, but you might mull over a specific way of thinking about something. Doesn't matter, thousands of thoughts. What you find is that by default, if we're unconscious and not pay attention, about 80% of those tend to be negative in some way. So we spend 80% of our time, in some way, feeling or thinking miserable about something in our life, and that doesn't mean that it's like the, the you know, the sky are falling and we shattered. But it's the kind of thought that we say, oh, you know, that was silly, you stupid. You say to yourself stuff, or you look at someone and you feeling negative about what they do, and you judge them negatively. We do a lot of that, right? And the beauty of positive neuroplasticity is that it says. You don't actually have to go, you know, from the Lunar Park to the movies, to the best restaurants, to, you know, like you don't have to take peak positive experiences continuously to rewire your brain. You just have to pay attention to all the amazing experiences that we have on a daily basis, which might be low in terms of like how amazing they are, but actually still pleasant and positive and encouraging. And, you know, like we great. We have a great life. And so, you know, like, can you put your feet on the ground for three minutes or four minutes and really feel the grass underneath your foot and how wonderful it feels, you know? Or it doesn't even have to be the grass. You can do it on your carpet. Or if you have a nice wooden floor, like, just appreciate the nice texture that we come into contact. Or when you open the hot water system and there's hot water coming through. The fact that water is coming into your house to start with, right? Right. Like there's, there's, Mm. you know, 900 million people on the planet that don't even have access to clean water for drinking. And we've got taps, you know, I've got like, I've got, I've got three toilets in my house. You know, it's like, it's insane how comfortable we are and how we take that for granted. Um, Instead of just realizing that there's all these touch points throughout our daily walkabouts where we can be really grateful and, and enjoy Sensual, comfortable, interesting, you know, exchange with our environment, whether it's whether it's through our senses or through an interaction with someone, right. And rejoice in that. Take the point to kind of be appreciative and, and rejoice in our ability to do that, right. So that's kind of one aspect. It's almost like the basement layer is start to pay attention to the to the pleasant, micro-experiences that you have throughout your day. So you tend to kind of, over time, rewire your brain to notice them more, which in turn sort of reaffirm their experiences. And it's a sort of switching the loop. Instead of this loop that looks for what's going to go wrong, you start to recognize what's going right. So that's kind of like the basement layer of it. And then the second one is to actually take conscious contemplative moment Of gratitude, of compassion, of kindness, of trust. There's a class of positive experiences which is fascinating because the only way to get them is to do more of them. In order for you to become more trusting, you gotta practice being more trusting. In order for you to feel more kindness, you gotta practice feeling kindness. So look for opportunities where you can switch the natural tendency to. You know, be suspicious of the world and worry about it and look for the ability to kind of like just expand and, and mm. embrace and rejoice and enjoy everything that's going around us. Because honestly, we do have wonderful life, most of us, right? Likely the mm. people who listen to this, right, are the people who already won what you could call the genetic lottery, right? they're able to look after they, you know they don't have to work 12 and a half hours breaking stone a day just to eat two meals if they're lucky and they you know they like we have access to these incredible rich experiences of our life and we just kind mm. of oh but yeah but I want to be you know the next one or you know I want to be richer or stronger or bigger mm. all of that we spend time on that instead of just really enjoying what we have so you, so you got that basement layer of you know momentary, low key, but really you know sort of positive, pleasant experiences that we want to notice more, and then added to that this conscious, grateful sort of practice of how amazing life is and um, um and and kind of you know strengthening that practice as well through being conscious of it and and really being grateful for all the richness in our life
0: I, yeah, and what um because I'm mindful, I'm very conscious that for a lot of people, that's going to be a hard bridge, right? To to just say, hey, just notice things more or yeah. feel more grateful, mm. right? That's a good concept. That's a nice concept. Yeah. But for a lot of people there, as you mentioned, 80% of their thoughts are negative thoughts. Yeah. That's probably a long way from where they are. I mean, you could say, you know, everything that you see and touch, you should take a moment and just, just, just think about what, what you're grateful for in that moment—that's a real hard bridge for people to cross if they are, like, if they're no, if they're not near there at all. Like, if that is, if that is a gap from where they are. Yeah. So, what about things like what role do things like, um, you know, journaling, goal setting, um, you know, like habits and stuff like on a daily basis sitting down and writing five things that you're grateful for things like that where does that where does that kind of like practical application come into it because i think the thing is like that you touched on is really really interesting there is that 80% of our 80% of our thoughts are negative thoughts mm. now most people would probably self identify as being baseline happy right mm. most people would probably self identify as being at least content or baseline happy or you know you know, grateful or whatever on a baseline. But if 80% of their thoughts are negative, it's like, well, imagine if you could just get that to 50, 50, (laughs) it doesn't even need to be 80, 20 the other way, but just imagine, just imagine if you could get that to 50, 50, imagine how transformative that would be on your worldview. And so rather than saying, Hey, you've got to flip it to become grateful and happy for everything and destroy all negative thoughts. It's all good. But like bringing that back to like, I'm trying to think about somebody who's listening to this podcast and they're going, okay, this sounds good. I, I want to rebalance my thoughts. Practically, you know, do you, oh, have, exactly. do you? What do you think about things like writing out goals lists and things like that? How yeah. does that kind of play into? And then, how how does that relate to the actual rewiring of the brain? Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Um, that's that's a really um, you know good point that we need to refine here. So, a couple of I want to sort of add a couple of uh, insights into the conversation that helps sharpen what I'm going to say in terms of the practice. Right. The first is that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for us, it's, there's two layers in our upbringing or in our, in our psychology uh, that compound each other in terms of our tendency to be negative about life, right? The first is what we've described in terms of like this survival mechanism, that the brain is only interested in survival. And then the second one is uh, the kind of psychological um, process that you've been subjected to as a child by your caregiver who, by and large, most were trying to be loving, trying to look after you, trying to sort of take care of you. And yet for the conundrum of how the human mind and psychology works, had their own demons to deal with. And chances are that in some point in your childhood have also kind of Layered you with emotional baggage that probably wasn't that useful for you, and you've tried to sort of deal with it, and 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 develop strategies to deal with it, which are not really that successful in the long run, right? So we, we one of the reasons why, uh, sorry, one of the reasons why so so many people, you know, struggle mental issues is because they're compounded by those two kind of layers of troublesome, you know, sort of. Uh, evolutional kind of uh, imprint in our brain plus unskillful parenting by you know by the majority of people again not because they don't love and care or whatever but how many times mm. for those of you who are parents how many times have you find yourself yelling at your child even if you didn't want to but they just you just get triggered right? so so we we want to understand that this is this is a lifetime of work what we're talking about it's not a switch. Right. It's, this is why it's called neuroplasticity, right? It takes time for that to change. And, and, and so now you get, so that's the second piece that I want to bring in. Think about it. I, I call it the cycle of intention, attention, retention. Right. So the intention is how you set it up. You say, okay, I want to become more, Um, you know, sort of aware. I want to notice more pleasant experiences in my life. I want to sort of be more focused on that sort of stuff. That's in, that's the, that's the intention. And then if you think about it, then piece, the piece that is missing for us is what we pay attention to. And in sense, we live our lives through the experience of what we pay attention to because we can pay attention to anything, but we tend to pay attention to that which we are focused on psychologically in terms of assuring us to give us the best experience under, you know, whoever we are as we developed, in you know, which sounds a bit of a complex way to say you kind of see the life that you think about. If you think that everyone is an asshole, sorry for my French, then you're probably going to notice the people who are. And if you think that everyone is marvelous, then obviously not everyone is going to be marvelous, but most of the time you're going to meet marvelous people. Um, And that has that 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 understanding that we tend to actually um, see life the way we look at it rather than, you know, sort of be the receptive um, uh, reader of what happens is a really important part of the puzzle here. And it goes down to the neural um, sensual level of your brain doesn't actually read reality. It reads what it think reality is and then adjusts it according to the input. And so you tend to project what you think you're going to see on the world and then validate what you think in noticing, paying attention to the pieces that validates your thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what do we, we need to do here? We need to say, okay, how do I develop? How do I develop my intention? And that could be the journaling, the you know, like I I would choose specific time in which I'm paying attention in a positive way to what's going on, right? So setting up the intention, setting up some practices that allow you to start paying attention to what's going on in a new way, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: finally turning it into a regular enough process and practice that becomes retention through the neuroplasticity sort of impact of it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a guy called Robert Keegan. I think he's, I think he's out of MIT. He's amazing, sort of, you know, psychological, sort of, um, in the psychological realm, a teacher. And and he he gives a very interesting uh, analogy to where we miss the trick in terms of how we interact in the world. And 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 the way that he, he uh, explained it, he says, imagine that you're driving a car and you're looking at the road. What do you think you're interacting with, or what do you think you're responding to? hopefully what you see on the road. But while you do that, you're continuously all the time looking through something that you don't even notice is there. And that is your windscreen. You don't pay attention Mm -hmm. to the windscreen, unless, you know, you get a big splat of some bug or whatever. But by and large, you don't pay attention to the screen because you're looking through that windscreen onto the road and interacting with the road. Your personality, the way you think about the world, the way you see the world is your windscreen. You will not be yes. able to see the stuff. It's very hard for the brain to see the stuff that doesn't fit in with our already preconditioned pieces. Uh, and we want to learn to kind of knowledge the screen more by setting ourselves practices by which we tend to suddenly become aware and conscious of a negative way of reacting to someone. So Goose rings me up and says, hey, Michael, um, you know, like I'm sorry, but I won't be able to to do the interview today. And if I'm wired that way, I will take that into the corner of oh, you know, like like people always let me down. I, I make arrangement and then they let me down because that's what I'm used to think about the world, and I will see it this way. Where if my pay, my attention to pay, my intention is to pay, you know, to pay more respect and attention to what things things happen and explain expect, expect less from the world to be exactly the way I think it. Gutz might ring me up and say, and I said, oh, okay, shit happens. What to do? Let's re, and now I, I don't have an argument with what's going on. I can't change the fact that you need to, you know, you want to change our arrangement. So what's the point of arguing with? And opening that space in between mm-hmm. what happens and the way that we react. There is a space there that allows mm-hmm. us to choose a reaction and that's the kind of capacity that we want. When you, this is a long way of answering your question, but it is an important point and I want to sort of elaborate how to get there. Look for opportunities where, instead of, a, you know, a, a, a trigger and your thought reactions being an unconscious automatic process that is based on the way you look at the world, your windscreen. Look for opportunities where you start to recognize what's going on in your head, and then see if you just bring a little bit of space and ask yourself, okay, is this the best way to respond? What would be a better way to respond? Because here mm. is what's fascinating, and that is that underneath all that deliberation around, you know, like we have a negative brain that is our, our human heart, our, in, our, our, um, our inherent default state of being when it's not psychologically damaged or driven by survival is actually good. It's actually Mm. meant to be um, beautifully engaged and happy and interested in the world around us. And you can see that in babies that are being taken care of. Like uh, Michael Neal is another coach working out of the States. He says, babies don't need psychological treatments, right? It's only until we screwed up with psychology that they need to start to get that. So find that... Um, ancient, uh, open, expanded, interested, non-reactive space inside you and see if you can start to look at the world through that. And mm. you don't need a lot uh, more than an intention and setting up few practices that allow you to raise the bar on your attention in those to start flipping the wheel on that.
0: mm yeah I love that yeah and I love the I love the reference of like you know the the space that happens in between stimulus and response Victor Frankel quote I think it is Correct. between stimulus and response between stimulus and response there is a space in that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom which is really really interesting that's, right and so suffering that, is a choice happiness right. is a choice yeah all of that kind of stuff so yeah. that is the core I mean,
1: that is the core of what I was trying to say and 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 uh just to elaborate how um poignant, that point is, this is a guy, for, for anyone who hasn't sort of come across Victor mm. Prangel, this is a guy who developed that insight and that practice and observation mm. inside a concentration camp, Yeah, uh, which you couldn't find a more extreme example by which you have no control about anything. Right, yep. And yet he realized that even when you have no control about anything outside you, this is the circumstances again, we have no control of circumstances, the last thing that we do have control is what is our relationship with the fact that we have no control about anything. And he mm-hmm. indeed called it the last of the human freedoms.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, like, on a on a deeper on a deeper deeper level, right? You know, on a kind of like quantum level, our real- our thoughts become our reality, and our beliefs become our reality. And to your point, you know, what you focus on mm. is what you tend to see in the world. But on a yes. deeper level, it is also what we what we genuinely scientifically manifest and create, right? Yeah. So, so this thoughts feelings emotions and beliefs that we have literally um shape the entire world around us and so therefore the the space between the stimulus and response is the moment in which we get to choose what the outcome is and like anyone anyone who's ever read a choose your own adventure book they were pretty popular when i was growing up mm. it is one of those things it's like a thing happens and then you get to decide mm. how you want um the reality to be after that which is crazy because then you literally get to just you get to go, okay, do I want to choose door A, door B, or door C Mm. at every single time you get now it's a very hard thing to do. I can say I can tell you from experience. I have been emotionally triggered today. <laughs> and 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 I've been like, oh my God. And I've been dealing with this kind of like uh, inattention, but then even just going through this conversation, I'm like, oh yeah, I get to choose how I respond to that. Yeah. I get to choose whether I want this to be a good, good, bad, or neutral, effectively, and and what pathway um, how do I want that to, to be? So yeah. I think that's really, really, really awesome.
1: Yeah. What's beautiful and fascinating about it that even even the process of learning to catch yourself, how you pay attention to someone is also subjected mm. to neuroplasticity, right? And you have the capacity to kind of turn that light on simply by wanting to turn that light on because we have, mm. we have a particular mechanism in the brain right that tends to it works a little bit like your you, your desktop on your like or you like your actual desktop on your computer by which if you want to find yeah. if you want to access a specific file really easily you can put it there so when you notice something and you think oh that's interesting or important to me or it triggers you in a way that is important to you then you tend to notice it more which is why for example when a friend buy a particular gadget or a, you know a piece of clothing or someone mm. bought a car and you really like that you've never seen that car in your in your life before or you never noticed that car in your, before and suddenly you see six of them the next day right now there were always cars like that but you didn't pay attention that way but now that triggered mm. something in you and it sits in your current memory as something that is satisfying or worthwhile noticing for some reason and you start noticing it right i have an experience my, my original language obviously is not english i have the experience of learning a new word in english now i've been using english for 40 years i love english it's a fantastic language um i'd like to think that i, I speak it reasonably well it it fascinates me and it happens over and over and over again where I learn a new word. I might read an article and I see suddenly a word that I've never noticed before and I go and look it up and I go, oh, okay, that's fantastic. And then suddenly I see the same word three times again in the next week after that. It's like, mm. I've never seen this word for 40 years and suddenly it appears four times in a week in my life. So so that part of the brain, simply by, by us saying, okay, I want to actually pay attention to how I react and catch mm. myself when i react unskillfully what you find and this is this is this beautiful sort of experience with you know we talked about the space like in the space between what you find is that at the beginning you might notice it afterward in other words you'll you'll still do the automatic reaction you'll still get angry you'll still get triggered but 20 minutes later you'll go oh i got triggered by that and uh that's a junction Mm. that i missed i could have taken a different road and i didn't And you notice it after. But if you keep paying attention, that space between you reacting and you noticing becomes shorter, right? Mm. And then this magical moment comes one day where as you're doing it, you're noticing it. And that's the point where you start to change because you can now start to notice it before Mm. it happens. Yeah.
0: Totally. I love that. Michael, I've really enjoyed this chat. Obviously, I think we could... You and I could probably do another two or three hours just on this topic because it's a very interesting uh, one to me. But I am mindful of time. Yes. Is there anything that you want to share with people before we wrap it up or do you think we've kind of like covered – we've covered a lot of ground. There's a lot of there's a lot of meat in this episode. <laughs> but is there anything
1: else you want to touch on before we wrap it up? Uh, I, I, I would say two things, right? First of all, that – in the tragedy of daily in, you know, sort of survival, even when you're successful, it, it often feels like survival, you know, like you, you need a full-time mm-hmm. job to be a parent. You need a full-time job to pay the bills. I mean, that just handling the bills is a full-time job. Then you have your own full-time mm-hmm. job and then you try and keep some, so I'm like, like we're busy, right? That's what I'm trying to say. We super, 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 super busy. And in the daily tragedy of that, because we are highly functional, most of us, We tend to be so good at being able to handle all those, but don't actually notice it. And then, you know, suddenly you find yourself, you know, running through another year and another year and another year. Like The number of people that I I, I meet around and myself including say, crikey, it's already November. How is that possible even, right? So in that daily tragedy, all we need to do is we need to open a tiny little crack you know, mm. that, like Leonard Cohen told us, right? That's where the light comes in, right? So so just a tiny little bit of crack in terms of the way we want to pay attention to how we interact, to start to integrate this idea of, you know, putting intention, paying attention, and turning it into a retention. We only need a little bit of that. We don't need a lot, right? We need three minutes of... Contemplation in the morning, three minutes of gratitude in the evening. You don't need a lot. Don't think that, oh, well, you know, that sounds great, but I'm too busy to. No, you, you're not. You can actually spend two or three minutes as you wake up contemplating this. And you can spend two or three minutes as you're going to sleep, just appreciating, counting your blessing. That's, that's already starting the process, right? So that's one thing. Please don't think that it's a big ominous thing. It's a lifelong process, mm-hmm. but it is where you have a choice. Do you want to enjoy? Do you want to have a life that's worth living, where you're kind of interacting from your your you know your wellness of 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 being, or do you want to sort of interact from your survival? That's that's a choice that you need to consciously make. And the second thing is, and I think uh, most people who I hope most people who will. Um, um, who will um, listen to this will appreciate. We're actually at a really, really crucial point in our evolution because we've never been in a situation where the impact of the decisions that we make uh, in between ourselves, amongst ourselves, for ourselves, for others is going to be so critical that we, you know, we might be dinosaurs 2.0 in 100 years or not. That's what oh, we're yeah. at, right? And so these times are specifically. Um, calling us to look for kindness, to look for trust, to change the way that we see the world, because it is within the human consciousness that we can change our experience. And that's true for the individual, but it's also true for the collective. So taking a stand, refusing to participate in the inner machination of violence, of murder, of anger, of all those things, and saying, hang on, I want to write a story by which I shine force. Really, really beautiful time for us to be invited into that and always Mm. available for us as an option. So I'm kind of I want to encourage people to see that invitation and respond to it.
0: Love that, love that. And if people want to um, find you, if you, if you, if if people want to reach out to you, if they just want to find you in general or connect with you, where should they do that?
1: Uh, a couple of good ways. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Positive Neuroplasticity, which is a bit of a mouthful, but you can figure out how to spell it if you look it up. Uh, is the, is my handle on um, on uh, Instagram and on Facebook? Uh, my handle on LinkedIn is Mindfulness Coaching. And uh, if you want to just check out my website, it's happyhabits.com.au. uh, Please do not hesitate to reach out just for a chat, you know like I, I, I'm absolutely lucky and grateful to be working in the business of you know trying to be happy together with other people. And so any opportunity to do that with anyone. And what's fascinating, this is, this is a really important point, Gus. it's got nothing to do with that, whether people reach me to me or anyone else who works in this domain, right? you can probably double the quality of your life experience or, or you know, the eighty percent that gives you that of of the hard time that you have with the life can be changed with twenty percent so to speak of your way of thinking. Mm. It doesn't need a lot of adjustment in terms of how you interact with the words to actually really start to feel a lot more happy and fulfilled with life. So, you know, I really like I really thrive and grateful as I said for being able to work in this domain. So people are most encouraged and feel comfortable to reach out for a chat i'd love that
0: love that yeah. michael I've really enjoyed this episode thanks so much for your yeah. time i really appreciate it thanks for coming on
1: good to connect thanks